Welcome to the Dystopian Republic. I am your host, Raul Guerrero. Our story for today begins on the early evening of August 20th, 1984. The sun setted its orange glare below the headquarters of the Brumelian Sunlighter. Based in Brumel Square, the Sunlighter stood tall as Brumelia's oldest and most reputable daily newspaper. Founded in 1857, it was the product of the country's first democratically elected government, taking pride in its mission not to let democracy die. Within its walls, another day of work came to a close. Journalists, staffers, said their goodbyes before walking out, save for three who decided to stay after hours. Mauricia Rosario, Marcos Castillo Jr., and Catalpa Hassel. Mauricia was a veteran journalist who's worked full-time for the paper since her graduation from university in 1969. Marcos, nine years her junior, was mere months into his employment at the paper. As for Catalpa, she was an intern working part-time for the 1984-1985 school year. Although the relationship was weeks young, the professional bond they've developed was already stronger than most others in the office. From Monday to Friday, they checked in, wrote, edited, printed, took breaks, ate meals, and checked out together. Howbeit, their intents to stay puzzled their co-workers and managers. The Sunlighter was weeks removed from the publishing of their expose on the $500 million Ponzi scheme Habsburgo Brumel VI ran for 11 years, resulting in his federal indictment just days ago. The whole paper held a glitzy cocktail party after work the previous Friday in celebration of its public acclaim. Since then, the paper had decided to rest easy for a few days, reaping the filthy rich fruits of their difficult and tiring labor. Still in all, Mauricia, Marcos, and Catalpa were told to suit themselves and not to stay up too late. Their waiting party began when they became the only personnel still in the building. Gentle pianics quietly hummed the main office with its stringed acoustics sinking the three in its contemplative and faintly melancholic waters. They got them thinking about the painful state of their nation, specifically its last four years. The indictment was the latest blunder in the presidency of Habsburgo Brumel V, a presidency of ups near to the ground and downs kilometers into it. Rampant crime, enduring recession, Congressional complacency, political division, and public 
embarrassment defined his term. Adding salt to that wound was the rise of Gregorio Lobo Jr., his opponent in that year's upcoming election. His Herculean, heavy-bodied, grim scowl did the pitch dark in his animalistic voice the best justice that could be done. However, that frown and speech stole the hearts of millions nationwide. His over-the-top charisma accentuated his calls for firing Habsburgo and his crooked cronies and educating the communism out of the general public. Gregorio desired to create a new Bromelia better and more efficient than the old, though he refused to elaborate on what that desire entailed, leaving it to speculation and the imagination. Gregorio's ascension, while disturbing, didn't concern them much, since their nation's three branches of government worked non-stop to check and balance demagogues like him. As a nation, Bromelia was halfway through its second decade of democracy, free from the two autocratic regimes that preceded it. On top of that, Gregorio worked tirelessly to distance himself from his father, Gregorio Sr., the fascist dictator who ruled Bromelia from 1934 to 1952. His endless strive to be his own man won the respect of those who wouldn't have supported him otherwise. Even so, it didn't exonerate him of his staunch conservatism. And that's assuming who he was in public matched who he was in private. But before they could further dwell on that, a phone rang, a tone they had waited four hours to hear. After turning the radio off, Mauricia answered the call, rejoiced to hear the caller ask her, in his disguised male voice, if she, Marcos, and Catalpa were alone. She assured him that they were the only ones still on the premises. Pleased by her answer, the man had them enter the parking garage, walking backwards, not daring to look back for even a millisecond. They stood and waited until he emerged from behind, electrolarynx in hand. His whole body, eyes and mouth included, was shrouded in black fabric, plastic, and or metal. The man wanted to be absolutely sure there was no chance of him being found out. Given his current situation, any hint on who he was, even under an alias, would have put his life and his family's lives in extreme danger. Able to see them vividly, he took one last look around for any unwanted guests. Not seeing any, he silently placed an encyclopedia set of binders full of internal documents and recordings onto a steel box truck, sending it over to them before walking out of the garage. 
their breathing eased after hearing his faint, vehicular departure. They carted the truck back into the main office, excited yet nervous of what they're about to uncover. Subduing their fears of the unknown, they carefully opened the binders, and what they revealed struck into their senses of touch an unholy terror unlike any other. In one recording, there was talk of an unnamed group amassing and training half a million veterans to overthrow Habsburgo. Their plan entailed countless public attacks occurring simultaneously, sweeping through areas urban, rural, coastal, and landlocked. It would erase all remnants of Bromelia's post-fascist world. The group's end goal was to install a dictator who'd dissolve Bromelia's democratic institutions, reverting it to its oligarchical roots, roots that made their people strong, brutal, and one to be feared and left alone by all. Their financial statements detailed support from some of Bromelia's top corporations and richest people, most of whom worked in the banking, chemical, meatpacking, oil and gas, and coal industries, or inherited fortunes from said sectors. The recording and documents for all the shocks they jolted didn't prepare them for what they'd uncover next. They discovered that the group secretly had the ears of legislators, cabinet members, and judges from all levels of Bromelian governance, federal, provincial, and municipal. Also, they now had the identity of the person who will be installed as leader should the plot prevail. That person was none other than Gregorio Jr. himself. In addition, they had a date and time in which the group's plan would be put into action, November 10th at approximately noon, two hours after the polls open for election day. The direness of the situation and risk of millions dying as a result smiled at them deadlier than an army of grim reapers. That was when hardened lever bootsteps reached their hearings and balances. The hollow steps froze them like campers face to face with a piranha pack of Nile crocodiles. And like such crocs, those packed paces have thirsts for blood that need to be quenched. Catelpa removed her flats and rapidly but noiselessly locked her, Mauricia, and Marcos in the office. Marcos popped his loafers off to shut the blinds with the same noiseless urgency. Mauricia directed them to hide with her under a cluttered horseshoed desk. When Marcos and Catalpa hunkered by her lap, her sense of responsibility for their well-being magnified on her its light. She trained Marcos when he was first hired and is presently supervising 
Catalpa's internship. But beyond work, she's been the person they could confide their personal life troubles in. And there were lots of them, particularly with parents and siblings. That luxury to tell all united their hearts with a coated tie made of a thick wool absence of light. Mauricia took a pistol out of her purse and cocked it ready for a good old shootout. Then the steps ceased, taking with it any and all noise, bewildering her, Marcos, and Catalpa. Right then and there, freshly grounded, star anise fragranced the barricaded air. Weirded out, they stayed where they were, waiting for the intruders to come charging in. Not long after, a dull migraine spun their brains like tops. The smell intensified their migraines to the point of passing them out. As it turned out, the intruders were a dozen very big men in suits, ski masks, and gas masks. Reliant on shaved keys and bolt cutters, their forced entry into the premises was the culmination of weeks of scoping, note-taking, and tour embarking. The three, now down, the men took their next two steps. Sometime later, a light shined over Mauricia, Marcos, and Catalpa's sleepy faces, all with pitch black outside their peaceful head fronts. The light's near-mute buzz hatched them out of their sleep cycles, presenting to them its ominous self. That inauspicious sight routed them to the splintery ropes securing their wrists and ankles. The fright, their amygdalae surged out, muted their voices, and paralyzed their nerves. They were certain the intruders took them to who knows where to stop them from foiling Gregorio Jr.'s seditionist plot. That certainty stared down at them with its crop-cutting, curve-bladed, long pole. The pitch-black then illumined to a late-night dim, revealing their kidnappers, still in their suits, but with loaded guns and without their two masks. Their faces rung bells to all three of them almost instantaneously. The young men were all known to the Bromelian Security Service, or BS2 for short, as having signs of extreme right radicalization. One man they knew in particular was Baldrick Crahe, a former co-worker of Mauricia's and former student of the University of the Capitol. Marcos's alma mater and where Catalpa was pursuing her journalism degree. His chauvinist mug crawled extreme close-ups 
of spider faces all over his captive's skins. As a student, Baldrick ran a fascist fight club in the basement of his three-story home in the hills east of Clemente. It was where he and his fellow rich roughnecks rained blows on metrosexual men and made playthings out of their cistern. Though Marcos and Catalpa later exposed his club, the faculty gave him and his men immunity on the condition they all disenroll. Months later, Baldrick utilized his wealth and connections to secure an internship at the Sunlighter, and before long, he wrote articles calling for violent attacks on politicians from both parties and for nationalists to unite and join together in taking their nation back. His tenure, though brief, struck a chord with countless readers, chords integral for his group's inception and growth. High and mighty of that start and expansion, he bid his three captives welcome to the last place their evil disgusting selves will ever see. Baldrick told them the man who gave them the info on his plot was dealt with moments after his departure, confirming their worst fears and giving credence to the hopelessness of their custody. Lightly tickled by their downhearted glowers, he swore on his parents he had no interest in harming them in any way, should they cooperate. His words clouded their glowers, taking them way into the distance, but left intact their refusal to do what he says. Baldrick originally planned for his men to bring three journalists over to him so they could beat and kill them on film. The beating and killing parts went out the window when he saw that Mauricia, Marcos, and Catalpa were the three his men brought over. His plan now was for the three of them to fight alongside him. Baldrick may have been from a world opposite to theirs, but he and they did have one thing in common. Honorable discharges from the Bromelian Armed Forces. He, Marcos, and Catalpa served by helping Bromelia reassume control of the Adalun Islands, an island chain west of Cape Verde. The highlight of Mauricia's service was the nation's capture of Robapel, an archipelago in the Gulf of Guinea. Baldrick heaved to Marcos and Cantelpa's mental forefronts the brutality they unitedly endured to help their nation take the chain back from their African enemies. Every single day reeked of decaying flesh, stuffing gunpowder, fuming waste matter, and choking fire smoke. From the first day to the last, their foes raged at them, thirsty to shed and force out as much of their blood and guts as possible. With regard to Mauricia, her service kindled an indignity that reduced her to the frady little girl she was when her deployment 
ended. Her time at the archipelago had her put enemy troops to the firing squads, burn entire villages down, bury those she killed in mass graves, and imprison civilians. Even though the conflict was common knowledge, the war crimes committed weren't. The only ones who knew of the atrocities were the people who carried them out. They kept those atrocities to themselves in fear of the capital felonies they would face should they speak out, driving some to suicide and others to pariahdom. The glance Mauricia darted at the floor ruffled Baldrick's steel-bladed feathers. He admonished her for her contriteness over the duties she toured, helping her remember her solemn oath of loyalty to Ecclestone Betancourt, the army officer who led the Adalunian and Rubapeli's missions, and was one of the cabinet members who he and his brethren had by the ear. Her feathers also ruffled. She shouted about how she enlisted to fight communists who planned on invading Bromelia, not colonize innocent lands, or enslave the inhabitants of those lands, accusing Ecclestone of deceiving her and her brothers and sisters in arms into fighting an aggressive war to enrich corporate Bromelia. Marcos and Catalpa strongly disputed her accusation, stopping Baldrick from ordering his men to do anything drastic. But in doing so, they bit the hand that got their feet in the journalistic door, that trained and mentored them all those months. They doubled down before Mauricia's disbelief could guilt them out of where they stood mentally. Marcos fought back to how the men he fought massacred an embassy of Bromelian diplomats, interned countless settlers, and took pleasure in murdering his comrades. He was sure the men he killed wouldn't shed tears for him had the fates been reversed. Catalpa harked back to the afternoon. Her platoon liberated a prison her foes used to hold women and children captive. The conditions she stepped into were insanitary and woebegone, furiously conceiving her passive aggression against native Africans. The line she and Marcos battled on, Habsburgo stripped of its honors, saying that it was gutless and cowardly of Grimsby, Valverde Sr., the president before him, to recolonize islands they had surrendered as part of Africa's decolonization. His reason for that removal of honor didn't make it any less impossible for either of them to forget or forgive. Not a word was needed to rest assure Baldrick that they were all in on his effort. That in mind, his men were ordered to untie them free and turn the lights on all the way. Once freed, Marcos and Catalpa grabbed Mauricia's shoulders 
to get her upright. Mauricia voiced her distress as Baldrick had them drag her out of the room with his men in tow. Their dragging stopped in a room containing a DIY projector and screen. When they unsubdued Mauricia, she frantically bolted for the exit. Mauricia's sudden run broke to zero, inches from where it took off. Her head screaming off, she's placed in a chair, strapped to its seat and forced by strap to face the screen. Mauricia hysterically addressed them with contempt for turning on her after everything she did for them, kinking the armors that were the resolves, spooked by the pencil-line cracks inflicted, Baldrick administered a sedative, quieting Mauricia's yells. Her deadened sadness prompted Marcos and Catalpa to walk out with Baldrick and half his men while the other half stayed with Mauricia. The next 10 hours and 13 minutes were the most crammed, intensive, and torturous in Marcos and Catalpa's lives, putting to shame the training they undertook in the military. During that same time period, Mauricia was compelled to watch, read, and listen to propaganda that praised the Yellow Cross, its strength, ultraviolence, and jingoism. The retraining drove Marcos and Catalpa's insides to wail at infantile pitches, bringing them to the brink of throwing in their towels. Their refusals to prove their estranged parents right kept the hearts of their endurances beating. Those endurances were what made their finish line crossings come about. Meanwhile, the indoctrination had Mauricia's anguish in a frenzy, pushing her desire to die within arm's length of giving in, her spurning to give her family what they longed for kept her desire locked in her ideation vault. That lock gave her the resilience necessary for her being to hold fast its will to live. Over the next 81 days, a traitorous reign of terror began to take shape. Millions of Bromelian dollars stuffed the pockets of Baldrick and his fellow plot leaders. Blueprints detailing the infrastructure needed for the chain attack came to life. Final touches were being made to a castle that the nation would remember forever. At the 53-day mark, the violence that was for so long proposed and planned took that pivotal step into action and execution. It opened with Habsburgo's press secretary dying from a bullet to the heart as she spoke to the press. Later that day, an entire caucus of centrist legislators were shot dead in a panache bistro. In both incidents, Marcos verbally conducted the shooters from the first note to the last, 
but to his misfortune, the shooters were all identified and arrested by sundown. Gregorio's promise of exoneration upon his rise to power pain-killed their arrests, heartening their confreres to themselves be assassins, filling jails and soaring casualties. As Marcos conducted, Catelpa was out recruiting disgruntled veterans in the days leading up to and following the shootings. Her nurturing charm made enticing the people she preached the yellow-jacketed gospel to child's play. She brought her converts to her superiors, who then retrained them how she and Marcos were retrained. On Mauricia's end, her re-education did away with her sensitivities to butchery and lamentation, yet her contumacy to the Yellow Cross cause persisted. That contumacy ensued an onslaught of beatings and whippings that were quickly treated with food, water, and medication. As her captivity became weeks old, the defiant metal that shielded her pure soul started to dent, crack, and chip off. The non-stop propaganda sprayed through the openings its poison, impuring her emotional and intellectual energies. The poison used its venomous properties that changed the dynamics of her thinking. Its continuing spread necrotized her soul's light of its outer perimeter, causing its shield to completely fall through. Following that breach, her soul's inner tissues began to go dark, embittering her feelings toward every person she's ever met prior to that late night in August. That necrosis ran her soul to its last stand, the key it must have to admit her into a whole new reality. The month preceding election day saw seditious squads lay low in sizable homes coast to coast. They're waiting for the queue to spring into action the blitzes of their lifetimes pent their bloodlusts up worse than forced sexual chastity. Hours from election day's midnight, Mauricia's eating of dinner tranced a stare that reeked of death. Baldrick asked her what she was thinking about and how she was feeling. The last light in her soul held strong, keeping her allegiance to the Yellow Cross in doubt. It played to her all the good times she and her family shared. The fourth of eight children, tender, loving care, pampered her from birth to adolescence. That extra attention exalted her status above almost all her peers. But the price she paid for that exaltation debased, ill-used, and isolated her at every turn, ultimately breaking her off from her family one evening in the early summer of 1969. 
for all that hurt, the light hanging onto her soul's thread maintained its grip. The readings, paintings, and recordings depicting Gregorio Sr.'s dictatorship terrorized her nights. They graphically presented the state of fear he lowered over his people, the trauma they lived with instilled in her generation its vow never to acquire their scars. Mauricia, like many others, took that vow herself, having no qualms about going to glory, upholding it. And there lied her crossroads, one leading to a certain death that'll uphold her vow and save her face with God, yet make her death a petty one that may be mourned by no one, and the other, a survival that will rise her above her family and secure her place in history, but break her vow and potentially be sent to hell. When asked to reveal her thoughts and feelings again, she told Baldrick that the weeks she's been in his custody were her life's most reflective and with all that reflecting considered, she had, at last, come to a decision on her allegiance to the Yellow Cross, giving him a fist-clenching smile that fevered onto her face a choleric pink. The sun rose its tangerine hue over the Bermelian homeland, waking its residents up in reminder of their quadrennial duty. Workers reported to their polling stations for duty, eager to see the country's most sacred right be exercised. Voters finished their morning errands before making those long-awaited trips to the polls. The workers pledged loyalty to the flag of Bromelia and to the state for which it stood, one people, one order, united with security and equity for all Bromelians. Their pledge segued to them opening the doors to a lengthy line of longing voters. Black and blue inks bubbled and signed the ballots casted. And soon enough, the clock struck noon. The time hell was to break loose. But incredibly, it ticked to one minute after without so much as a bullet bang. No hitches prevented the next nine hours from peacefully passing by. That day's contrast to the mayhem that ruined the previous 28 was stark. Some pundits boasted how right they were that election day would come and go smoothly, mocking the press for painting Gregorio Jr. as the next Habsburgo Brumel Sr., the father of the country, who monstrously abused it from 1844 to 1855. They ranted endlessly about how Brumelia will never again succumb to totalitarianism. The basis of their diatribes 
was the country's cultural similarities to the United States, ignoring how immensely different its past and present was to theirs. Their conceits notwithstanding, the election's outcome arrived 11 minutes after 9 o'clock. To no one's surprise, Habsburgo defeated Gregorio by a 3-1 margin, the greatest in electoral history. The second that call came, the break loose everybody feared all day long was realized. In next to no time, a million strong insurgents eliminated thousands who celebrated the election results or were policing their parties. The blitzes leveled the free branches of the nation's municipal and provincial governments, collapsing towns and cities across all population quantities. Police, military, and civilians desperately tried to stop their mutinous aggressors only to be decimated mercilessly. Overnight, the blood continued to flow indoors and outdoors, invisibly fogging the Bromelian landscape in spent bullets, fresh corpses, smoky flames, and dusty destruction. All the while, there wasn't any word on the welfare of Habsburgo or his government. Then, as abruptly as it began, the carnage subsided to the hazy sunrise, giving light to the catastrophe that ravaged the nation. The light showed the tens of thousands from both sides who died and the many more wounded or displaced. Bromelians, rich and poor, sheltered in place, waiting for their radios to tell them the end result, such as the Rosarios, Castillos, and Hassos. The white noise that kept everyone in suspense ceased twelve hours to the minute of their hellish night's beginning. The next thing they heard was an anthem swinging the triumph of a will almost all thought was impossible to resurrect. What most couldn't see was the transfer of power that was about to take place. Yellow Cross troops occupied the Bromelia Capitol building, the blood of democracy on their hands. Even some of them were shocked their coup actually succeeded, charging into battle, prepared to die fighting, seated on the chair or in a cage. The representatives, senators, justices, and all their staffers were either killed or captured. Occupations similar in quality encircled the Decagon and defaced to the highest of heavens the monuments memorializing Habsburgo Brumel Jr. 
and Catalina Aragon, lifelong lovers. He was the first president, while she offered the original constitution. In the presidential chateau, Habsburgo laid deceased from a self-inflicted gunshot up his mouth's roof and out his skullcap in the circle office. His suicide disgusted the far-right rebels who felt. Like he got away with his corruption, that setback aside, they stood firm and scowled stoically in the premier rotunda. Manifolding footsteps echoed their way and exposed to view their owners, Gregorio, Baldric, Marcos, and Catalpa, and Mauricia. Their jackets, gloves, trousers, and boots amalgamated militarism and royalism into a ruthless regality. His accompaniers postured and glared amongst their brothers and sisters in arms. The pedestal Gregorio stood on mounted him. Over his subalterns, declaring himself supreme leader to the Bromelian people, he splendidly exclaimed that it was morning again in Bromelia, adding that its days of weakness and mediocrity are over. That declaration ignited a unified scream and fist. Hoisting, Gregorio understood the consternation and indignation, hurting a great deal of his populace. He advised the indignants to accept the situation, or be put to the wall. Those consternated were told their rights to live will be upheld as long as they respected his right to absolutely rule. Over them, his speech closed on his declaration that an old era has ended, and that a new one begins now. That new era would be starved of its people power, right to humanity and utter morality, and engorged with a despotic order that'll be the fiendish odium of the West. And as fate would have it, Gregorio's demonic reign will maltreat the country in manners that will relentlessly bedevil its civilization all the way to the present and long into the future. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the three who knew. Thank you for humbling me with your listening ears. And please be sure to share this show to as many people as you can. Follow me on LinkedIn and send me your questions and feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. nine five at gmail dot com. Finally, I highly urge you to support the show via my PayPal at www. 
paypal.me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. Every dollar helps in maximizing its financial and creative autonomy. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another episode of the Dystopian Republic.